Good morning, Fellowship. Uh, whether you're online, great to have you with us uh, in the uh, overflow and in the family room or here in this room, the very room where Movement Day is going to be, by the way. Uh, I just want to say it's great to have you with us, especially if you're here for the very first time. Um, uh, I, I, uh, you, you know that tune yeah, for the Good Life uh, sermon introduction? I thought, man, that is such a cool tune. It's too cool for me. I feel like I'm not cool enough for it. I feel like I need to be James Bond with a martini and a cigarette walking around up here. That probably wouldn't be good for the sermon, but it, uh, uh, it, uh, it just got that vibe about it. Listen, I, want to, um, I actually want to pray for our sister Lydia. She's probably listening online right now. She broke her arm while on holidays, and uh, she's in a lot of pain. So I thought, you know, it'd be good to encourage her uh, if we all, wherever we are in, uh, in space and time, pray for her right now, eh? Father in heaven, uh, we bring before you our dear sister Lydia, who has led the worship team for so many years here at Fellowship. Uh, And we pray, Lord, right now that you would lay your healing hand upon her. She's been a faithful servant. Be with her, her husband Jazz and the kids. Uh, This is a difficult time for them, Lord, and we uphold them to you uh, together as your people. And Father, we pray now, wherever we are, whether we're just kind of checking out Christianity or whether we've been walking with Jesus for a long time, that you will give us all soft hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone wants a good life. Amen? That's why we all came to Dubai one way or another, in search of the good life. Whether we found it or not is another matter, but we came looking for it. And you think, well, there's so many definitions of what a good life is. Let me tell you what I think Titus, the book that we're looking at now, as we're going to go through the next four weeks, the book of Titus, this little pocket rocket of a letter. It pretty much says that the good life is a, is a life lived well on God's terms. A life lived well on God's terms. I think the whole theme of the letter is this, that God calls these people to live the good life by God's grace to make Jesus look good. That uh, God calls these people to live the good life by God's grace to make Jesus look good. And we want not just our church and other churches, but the people of Dubai to share in that good life. Um, you know, because people are struggling. You know, people I know we, that we all know here in Dubai. It's not like it's a cool city, but there are people who are struggling, like everywhere in the world, with relationships, battling to lead themselves, battling to lead others in families, in, in business. Um, so we want that for them. And, and you know, with Movement Day coming up, people often say, you know, what's kind of been the fruit of Movement Day? And, you know, one, one, of the, one of the fruits has been, it's just as one simple example, on the board of Movement Day uh, is Dr. Jason, and he had a real burden for the youth of our, of our city and our country. And so he put on a new initiative. It's called Adopt a School in Prayer. I think it's a fantastic idea. He wants actually the same for hospitals as well. And uh, I'd love you to take a photo of that QR code and that you would actually consider choosing a school or an institution and to make it yours to pray for every week, that you will come before the Lord. Because why? We want the good life for everyone, for every child, every parent, every teacher, every admin and security guard who works in a school. The good life. But the good life requires godly leadership. You know, John Maxwell, he's one of those guys that's basically a very Christian man who actually has made a is very well respected in the leadership world. He said this, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. Just to illustrate it, you think 
Take UAE and Singapore as two examples. In the 60s, both were very small, struggling communities. Now they've become business centres in their respective spheres with world-class hospitals, amazing leadership. Compare that to in some nations where dictators through a coup offering their people a good life have trashed the economy, lined their pockets with money they shouldn't be having, and as a result have left behind a trail of disaster and, and unresourced hospitals. Oh no, it is, a, it is a truthful statement to say everything rises and falls on leadership. You see a well-run school with a very good principal, then there's a change in leadership. Two years later, that's the school you don't want to send your kids to because the change of leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. You want to transform city, you need transformed churches. You want transformed churches, you need leaders who are transformed by Jesus Christ. So what does the good life look like? What does rather God look for in leadership? Now, you're thinking, hey, this is not a sermon for me. I'm telling you, what we're about to see is for every believer... And it's what we ought to be looking for in any leader, whether they're in the marketplace, in government offices, in sports teams, in families. So here's a picture of the uh, fellowship elders. Uh, we had Andrew up on, up on the top left as the chair of our elders. Uh, let me just say a couple of things. Here, it's been given to the elders by God to, and I quote 1 Timothy 5, direct the affairs of the church. Now let's have a look at that photo again one more time. Why were they appointed? On what criteria? Was it their good looks? Yes. Okay. I think that was Andrew saying yes. Was it their IQ? Well, clearly I'm up there, so that can't be the case. Uh, was it their sense of humour? Well, I've only got dad, granddad jokes, so I... No, let's see what exactly God is looking for. But it's interesting, before he, he actually wants to begin on leadership as a key to transforming a church and the gospel. But before he does that, he locates God's plan for leaders within God's great plan before time began. Let's look at Titus 1, 1 to 3. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to what? Godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, love that phrase, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through his preaching entrusted to me, Paul, by the command of God our Savior. So everything doesn't quite rise and fall on leadership, does it? It actually rises and falls on God himself and his great plan. Let me unscramble that sentence because it's very complex. It's essentially saying, in a nutshell, that Paul was sent by God to God's chosen people so that they would be like God. That's pretty much what it's saying. God, Paul was sent by God to God's chosen people that they would be like God. The God who cannot lie, the unlying God is actually technically how it's said, made a promise before time to bring us to himself, not only that we would be with him forever, which is great, but that we would be like him. And that's the distinctive theme of Titus. Uh, I remember a friend of mine, whenever he said goodbye to me, he said, Ray, don't forget, keep up the good works now. And now he knew that you're not saved by good works, just as our dear sister said on that video at the baptism. But we are saved to do good works. Amen. And leadership is not just a cute idea that someone suggested. 
It's actually a command from God to achieve that. Look at verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you, Titus, might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I, Paul, directed you. Okay, the Apostle Paul, sent by Jesus, is actually writing to Titus uh, to, and that's his kind of like second, second man in charge, his wingman, to basically finish off what they had both started when they had preached the gospel in Crete. Now, Crete is an island off the coast of Greece, not too far from Malta, in case you're interested. I know you're not. <laughs> Crete basically was the wild west of the Mediterranean. I mean, this, this outfit, they were out of control. This was a culture in crisis. Let me tell you how bad they are. This is a Cretan man, 600 years earlier, commenting on Cretan culture, right? So he's picking on himself and his own people. Verse 12, he says this. One of Crete's own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul comes along and says, you know, this saying is true. <laughs> like a full stop at the end. They were a long way off from living the good life. There was a lot of work for God's people to do to transform this city. It would take good leadership to produce the good life here. Now notice... You notice as we did the reading that the the name for leaders in the church, they're called elders at one point, they're called overseers or bishop at another, and and there's also a reference to them being God's stewards. It's actually referring to the same group of people. But notice what they're not called. We're never called priests. The word priest in the church is used of two groups, used of two people. One, Jesus, our great high priest, and two, you. You're a priest because you have direct access to the throne of grace on behalf of others. But it's never referred to the leadership of the church. Okay, what did Paul want Titus to finish off? And the journey goes like this. Firstly, it begins with the gospel preached. Then people are saved, praise the Lord. Then churches are formed because Jesus says, I'll build my church. But notice where it ends at that point? With the appointment of elders and pastors. I may be the senior pastor of fellowship, but I see myself as one of the elders of fellowship and I sit under the collective will of the board of elders. In our constitution, you, you, don't, you may not know this, but the majority of elders have to be lay people. They're actually not paid pastors or on staff. That top line of those four elders, they've got their own jobs, full-time jobs. They pastor and oversight the church on top of everything else that they do. And we pastors and ministry directors and administrative staff, under the will of the collective will of elders, seek to serve the good of the church under their authority. I make suggestions all the time, and they don't all get picked up. That's very good. Why? Because I don't have absolute authority. In fact, there's so many checks and balances, we're basically saying we don't really trust anyone, everyone, completely. And so there's a series of checks and balances, which is exactly how it ought to be. We are the elders of fellowship. What, what are the elders of fellowship to be like? Now, now we're going to go through a list. Now, let me say again, the list we're about to look at is as true for every follower of Jesus as it is for leaders. It's true for parents. It's true for people in the marketplace. The overarching word here is blameless, verse 6 and 7. An elder must be blameless. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Not sinless, otherwise we'd all have to sack ourselves. 
You know, I believe the Lord's Prayer when I say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus expected that every disciple of Jesus will be confessing sin on a daily basis. And yet, blameless in the sense of above reproach. Look what Titus 2.8 says that kind of illustrates what it means to be above reproach. So that the opponent will, not have, will have nothing to speak against us. Blameless, not open to a charge. That is, not open to proven accusations of misbehavior. So blameless in what areas? And you know what I love about this list? It starts with the family. I always say my family and not my bachelor theology is my qualifications for church, being a church pastor. Look at verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Literally, it says, uh, husband of one ma- uh, sorry, the, the husband of one wife. Which, by the way, guys, doesn't mean the rest of you can have two wives. <laughs> I'm watching. Now, it, it's basically saying, at the very least, we're talking about 101 Christianity here. You need to be faithful to the wife of your youth. You need to be a one-woman man. I was talking to my nephew years ago, adult nephew, and uh, he had changed religions, and, uh, and, and he had a spiritual mentor, a director, who was, had been divorced three times. And I said, I said, that's interesting. I said, one of the qualifications for a leader in the church is that he's faithful to one wife. And, uh, and, and I said, the reason being, and then I quoted 1 Timothy 3.5, And the point being is this, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of of God's church? And my other nephew who was listening said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Of course it makes a lot of sense. If you can't be faithful in your family context, how can you be in charge of the family of God? And, and so to that end, um, if, my, if I had a seven-year-old son who was a committed atheist or a nine-year-old daughter who was you know, doing break and enters into, into apartments in, in Dubai, it's probably not a good idea that I stay as a pastor, that I basically step down and take care of them first. In fact, when my kids were young, I used to say, you guys, you know, they were like six and seven at the time, you guys have the most powerful position in church. Why is that, Daddy? I said, because if I don't love you properly, I have to step down from being a pastor. I said, oh, really? <laughs> they like that. Elders, blameless in their family. Not sinless, but blameless in their family. Blameless in their character as well. Verse 7. Here are five things of what not to be. Since an overseer manages God's household, and that comes with a heavy responsibility, he must not be blameless, not overbearing, sorry, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given a drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing gain. Here are five things you ought not to be as an elder pastor. And by the way, every Christian, not overbearing. We know the difference between someone who exercises authority and authoritarianism. Um, that arrogance that can, that, that can be overbearing and crushing. The sheep need to feel safe with the shepherd is the point here. Even in the correcting and rebuking role of a pastor elder, it's to be done with gentleness and respect. He must, re- he must reflect the grace of God as he stewards the word of God. Secondly, not quick-tempered. God is slow to anger, and so must we be. 
And let's face it, our anger is always worse than the thing we're angry at anyway. And when we do sin in our anger, we must be quick to apologise. I do love it when, you know, I've been to lots of elders' meetings and pastors' meetings. And, you know, occasionally someone says something, including me, with with an edge in the voice. And, you know, you just think, oh, that was a bit edge. And what I love is by the end of that meeting or in the next day on a WhatsApp, someone's apologising. I think that's exact, not sinless, but above reproach. I've realised I'm less grumpy at fellowship than I was in my old church. Why is that? Am I getting godlier? Probably not. <laughs> I think it's because I was the founding pastor of my previous church, and, and I think I, didn't, I wasn't aware of it, but I think a bit of my identity was up in the church. And so when things weren't going right, I'd get a little bit grumpy. And I, and I find here, I'm stepping into history, I'm part of a team, and I, and I find, actually, I'm actually much more relaxed here. This is a good thing. Because people should not be walking on eggshells round pastors. <laughs> Thirdly, not given to drunkenness. Full of the Holy Spirit, yes. Not full of the spirit of Johnny Walker, no. <laughs> True story, I, had a, I knew this lady, her dad was a pastor, and he preached in the morning. By five o'clock he was drunk that afternoon. She said, Ray, I have to come to your church. I can't stand the hypocrisy of my father. It was killing her. I think he eventually did repent, which is good news. Not violent. Not violent. What would that be doing here? Gentle like Jesus. Well, keep remembering the culture from which the gospel had come. They were evil brutes. I mean, that's basically saying animalistic. That tear you apart. And so, but forget Crete. We know the human heart. Think about the Apostle Paul. Before he became a follower of Jesus, he said, I was a violent persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. I dragged men and women out of their homes and had them beaten up and killed. The one who wrote this letter was once violent. Peter himself, at the Garden of Gethsemane, they come to arrest Jesus, pulls out a sword. It's pretty gutless. He doesn't go for the soldier. But he slices the ear off the slave who had come. He sliced off the ear. And what does Jesus do? Puts the ear back on. <laughs> and then says, Pete, put away the sword. We're not going down that road. Violence will not mark the people of God. Didn't you love Martin Luther King the, the, in dealing with the civil rights issues of the 60s during the United States? Turbulent time. Just took a straight line of nonviolence. I thought, man, he was capturing the heart of Christianity. What else? Not violent. Not pursuing dishonest gain. We're to love God, not money. We're to love God in how we use our money above reproach. My sister-in-law said to me, after, when I took the position to become uh, pastor here, she said, um, by the way, Ray, like, what's the salary like? I said, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> You're taking your wife to the other side of the world. You don't even know what the wage is? Nope. <laughs> And I said that story to Bill. He said, you know, it was exactly the same for me. I didn't know what the salary was till I came. Because we're not supposed to be doing it for the money. In fact, you know, I was thinking about, I was thinking of saying, you know, like you could, the eldest could take a quarter off my salary and it wouldn't make any difference. I'd still stay. And then I thought, I better not suggest that to the elders because they might take me up on it. <laughs> Five things not to be. Six things to be. Verse 8, rather he must be hospitable, 
one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, hospitable, lover of strangers. Not lover of strange people, that too, but lover of strangers, people who they don't know, people who are foreigners to you, outsiders to your circle of known relationships. Xenophobia is a fear of alien strangers, foreigners. Philoxenia is a lover of strangers. Why? Because our welcoming face reflects the welcoming heart of God. That our open hearts and open homes reflect the open arms of Jesus, our glorious Saviour. Pastors who preach and then run home do not love the church that they're pastoring. Moa, I, I, I think I've shared this story before. I was explaining once to my, in, my, in the first early days of the, uh, my first church plant, we had about 40 people in the congregation. And I said, look, it's very important that you don't judge people by body language because you can get it wrong. For example, my wife has a slightly downturned mouth. And I said, you could, I said to the congregation at the time, you could think she was kind of upset with you if she doesn't intentionally smile. Anyway, four people out of 40 came up afterwards and said, Ray, thank you so much for telling me that about Sandy. I used to think she was upset with me. So I shared that with Sandy. And she, ever since then, uh, whenever she's with God's people, she purposely, not just then, but she purposely smiles. Because the last thing she wants to do is misrepresent what God is like. When she trains the children's leaders, she says, make sure you smile. Because when you're talking about God, if you're not, they can think you're angry with them and upset. She's so jealous to make sure that they understand the heart of God, who is a welcoming God. God has a permanent yes for the world, if only they would come to him. And then the elder is to get this. Love what is good. Tell you that's a good God who wants us to love what is good. Love God. Love the church. Love the lost. Love loves to be like God. Loves the truth. Loves what is good. But does not love the patterns of this world. I had a chance to meet the son of C.S. Lewis. Now, if you don't know C.S. if you know the Narnia series, probably the top five, one in the top five Christian writers famous Christians of the last hundred years. I quote him all the time. One of the great ones. He's since passed away and went to be the Lord. Anyway, his, his son moved to Malta and I got to meet him. Wow. And he's swimming in his pool, having lunch. I even went into his office and he showed me the Narnia sword uh, that was in the movie. Wow. Anyway, I had one question for him. The son, Sepstan of C.S. Lewis. What do you think that question was? What, you, know, you get a chance to meet the son of a famous Christian who has impacted the world. What kind of question do you want to ask that person? What was he like? <laughs> That's it. What was he like? What was he like as a father? What was he like? And then I'm on the edge of my seat waiting for the answer. Oh, whew. He said, he was a good, kind and loving man with a great sense of humor. I thought, oh, thank you, Lord. Because there's nothing worse to have so many profound words spoken from a man whose own family hates him. He was a good man. At some point, every elder needs to look you in the eye and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Elders, they're to be self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Question, who is the most, who's the most difficult person to lead? Who's the most difficult person for you to lead? Yeah, yourself. <laughs> the hardest person I have to lead is me. 
Try managing that mouth for a moment. It came, you know, things come out of there. I don't. Then imagining the imaginations of my heart. Oh my goodness! Just keeping me on track. It's a full-time job. And that's why in Titus, the word, the theme of self-control just keeps coming up again and again. We're going to see about the, more of that in two weeks' time. Grace-driven self-control that denies oneself, takes up the cross to follow Jesus, to make Jesus look good. Now, the church can fall into two big mistakes when we think about eldership. The one is... You can have no expectation of godly behavior for an elder. You just simply say, well, it doesn't matter. You should see what my boss is like. He's much worse. Your boss is not the measurement of what an elder should be like. But secondly, having a sinless standard for elders is equally wrong. So a few months ago, the elders felt convicted to want me to share with you in this sermon um, about reflections on how they have been in the last couple of years. And they said this, and I want me to pass it on to you. We are so thankful to God for the rapid rate of growth at fellowship. But with that kind of growth, the elders have become aware that they have needed to develop proper processes and policies to handle high-level pastoral matters in a just and loving way. Poor processes hurt people. And we have do- uh, which we have done, and for which we are deeply sorry. I'll say that again. Poor processes hurt people, which we have done, and for which we are deeply sorry. We not only want the right outcomes, we actually want the right processes to get to the right outcomes. So the elders have sought external counsel, have recognized the need for greater wisdom, and uh, have implemented the following. Number one. The appointment of an independent organization to help respond, help us respond wisely to significant complaints and grievances that happen in every church. Two, it's important we provide pastoral and counseling support for all parties. And three, that we provide a code of conduct and procedures that help people to know how to make complaints. Now, if you've got any more questions, I can't do, talk much more about that now, but if we have, you have any more questions, come and speak to one of the You've seen Andrew read the Bible, so identity, you, know, you can track him or myself or Pastor John or Aaron, uh, Tim, uh, when he comes back from leave next week. Uh, so got, every question is a legitimate question. Don't be afraid to ask the eldership questions, even difficult questions. We need to be blameless with family. We need to be blameless in character. But you know that's not enough. We need to be blameless in the way we handle the truth in sound doctrine. Not only to hold on to God's word, but to defend it. Look at verse 9. He must, not, sorry, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it is being taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The trustworthy message there is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is the leader's responsibility to make sure he holds on to that gospel and never lets it go. Because it is not our job to preach the 21st century gospel. It's our job to preach the apostolic gospel, to teach that, to hold on to that as it has been taught and passed on. You don't get the the freedom to add to the message of Jesus or to take away from it. We're supposed to be creative in everything but the truth. How many churches have died because... 
the elders have failed to hold on to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and to hold on to the sound doctrine of the word of God so that we can encourage people with the truth as well as hold on to it and defend it against uh, a sea of lies. It's why we preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, so that you don't rely on me and us to come up with our hobby horses. We refuse to believe the lie that we're wiser than God. The true and living God, who cannot lie, sent his Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life, sent his Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that we may understand that everyone on the side, everyone on the side of truth listens to Jesus. We want elders who love the truth, who live out the truth, and then speak the truth in love. That's pretty much it. I'll say that again. We want elders who love the truth, who live out the truth, and then speak the truth in love. Seriously, the church rises or falls on the quality of its leadership. So let me close with a few points. Number one, you know God expects this list of everyone, not just leaders. That's why I use it. I used to use it, uh, and I still do, as a, to structure my, uh, my confession over the course of a week. I would take, there's 15 things listed on this list, and I would take a, a couple of them for every day and meditate on it, how I was failing to live up to that calling and then confess it. Two, uh, this list, if you notice, it reflects the very character, God's holy character. See, God doesn't allow us to come up with our own list. Oh, no, no. He says, I'll come up with the list. But by coming up with a list, he's functionally telling you about himself. You know, this is, this is the kind of stuff that matters to him. You can tell he is a good God because he wants us to love what is good. You know he's a holy God because he wants us to be faithful to our spouses, loving parents. He wants us to live lives with character and, um, and integrity and, and wholesomeness. He's Holy fingerprints are all over this beautiful list. Imagine if, if Satan was God. Oh, it'd be a different list. Yeah, go sleep around who you want. Bash up anyone who gives you trouble. It'd be a completely different list. But here, our good God wants the good life for his people to make Jesus look good. And so let it inspire you to praise God and thank him for being this kind of God. This is a good list, friends, because he is a good God. Amen? Amen. And pray for your church elders and pastors. You know, Robert Murray, Robert Murray McShane. Sorry, bad at Scottish. Um, I never get the accent right. Stay away from the accents, Ray. Stay away from the accents. Robert Murray McShane said this, Pastor, greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. So I plead with you. Pastors' elders are going to be judged more severely, not only by the church, but by Jesus Christ on the last day. So I beg you to pray for us. We need it. We make a mis- you make a mistake, it has limited consequences. We make a mistake, we impact thousands of people. Four, encourage your leaders. It is very demanding work, especially those elders who aren't on staff. You know those four elders on the top of that photo? I don't know if we've got a photo. You know, Andrew, Brian, Spencer, and Ashley, I want to honour them because they, they've, got, they've got their full-time jobs. And on top of that, they're taking, this week alone, they were in three meetings. Uh, they work very hard, and I honour them, and I thank God for their families who have to share them with the whole church. They work very hard. And I want to say, I know them up close and personal, and can I say, 
Very impressive men. I said to Ashley, uh, no, sorry, I went to Ashley's wife. I bumped into her last week, uh, and uh, Mercy's her name. And I said, hey, Mercy, what's, what's Ashley like? And he said, and she said, I couldn't have asked for a better husband. I said, oh, that's good. Fifth, consider being a leader yourself. Sure, only so many are going to be elders and pastors, but there's levels of leadership that run right through our church. If there's a desire within you to lead, that is a good desire. Listen to what 1 Timothy 3.1 says. Here is a trustworthy saying, so you can believe it. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he is smug, self-righteous, and arrogant. No, it doesn't say that, does it? He desires a noble task. I still remember the day I read that verse and I thought, oh, it's okay to aspire to be a leader. That is a good thing. If you aspire for leadership in the church of Jesus Christ, whether you're a man or a woman in any level of leadership, so I just have, we're not just talking about leadership, I want to say that instinct in you is a good desire. So take that desire and start to develop the fruit of the Spirit. Start to be, continue your journey of wanting to be like Jesus, not for the sake of leadership, but for the sake of the fact that you're a child of God and Jesus is worth it. And as you aspire to become more like Jesus, ask for the gifts of the Spirit and then begin to serve on a ministry team. And as you serve, understand you need to be faithful in small things before God will give you more things. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. So I pray that God will raise up a generation of men and women who will take up leadership in every level of our church's structure. And finally, can I just simply end with this? I thank God for you guys. Because if the call for you is to encourage and honour your leaders, then it's to me to say we feel encouraged and we feel honoured and we feel loved. So can I say I thank God. We the elders and pastors thank God for you, brothers and sisters, who make our role an absolute joy and privilege. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to praise you that your holy character is all over these qualities for an elder, pastor. And we actually know it's not just for pastors and elders. It's for any kind of leader. And it's actually for every believer. And so we thank you, Lord, that you want leaders who lovingly lead their families. Oh, you are a good God. And you want us to do good. And we thank you, Lord, that you want leaders who are marked by integrity. Oh, you are a holy God, and you are worthy of our praise. And we praise you, Lord, that you, you want us to hold fast to your word. Lord, we want to say thank you for the elders of fellowship who work so hard, especially those who are lay elders and uh, work, do their normal work, and then on top of that carry so much extra responsibility. Father, we want to today honour the likes of Ashley and Andrew, for Spencer and Brian. Thank you for the members of Fellowship, Lord, because as, as an elder pastor, I know firsthand that we feel the encouragement and respect of this beautiful church, and we thank you for them. We know that's a work of your spirit in the lives of your people. And Lord, together we pray, please raise up more leaders we know, Lord Jesus, that when you saw the lost sheep of Israel, you saw that they were battered and bruised, and you wanted us to pray for more workers in the harvest. And so we pray, please, Lord, raise up more workers.
For we long for fellowship to be a transformed church in Jesus Christ, led by transformed leaders in Jesus Christ, so that we can together transform this wonderful city, Dubai, and whatever city we live in, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen indeed. Let's praise our God. Thank you.